0: Daisy. she's 15 now. Oh my, my son, oh my son just, here, he he is just turned 12. Uh, my next daughter, Susanna, is nine, and John, in my arms there, is now five. The men and I have been married for 19 years now. Woo! Woo! Next year we'll be 20. Um, but we don't come from a Norman Rockwell-style family, you know, good old Americana. Uh, My parents split when I was 12. There was a lot of issues going on there. Amanda's family is so blended, we don't even have time to get into it right now. Uh, But the point is that we don't come from some family where we were brought up with just a treasure trove of resource and tools. We, We really had to go to God's word and we really have to rely on the Holy Spirit. And we're still doing that to this day. There's still a lot of corruption and pollution from the world we're still trying to work through to make sure that our marriage is based on biblical, godly principles. So I say that just to encourage you. We all have the same resource. We all have the same treasure trove we can go to in God's word and in his spirit so that our marriages can be blessed. Uh, Regarding retreats, so I've been to a lot of them over the years, and I can't tell you. What I learned from each one of them. That's just the way it goes. You're lucky if you walk away from a retreat like this with one or two key points. At the same time, they are incredibly valuable. I heard a story one time, this is an old preacher's story, about a guy who didn't want to come to church anymore because he couldn't remember what was being preached a month ago. And he's like, what's the point? It's not like this stuff is really sticking with me. And the preacher asked him, think about it this way. What did your wife cook for you a month ago? And you couldn't remember. Can you even remember what was cooked last week? No. But you ate it, it fed you, it nourished you. And in the same sense, these retreats nourish us. Yeah, you may not even remember what's said here today five years from now, but it's necessary that you're here for your nourishment.
1: Yeah, yeah, good.
0: On top of that, we live in a world now where you can get nourishment... Very easily. I mean, there's a fire hose of teaching, whether it's podcasts or YouTube or television or radio or books or just your friend at work. And that can all be helpful to an extent. But there's something special about coming here together with the people of God, spending hours together, going to get lunches together, that really helps the message sink down. So I just I say all that to help prepare you to get the most out of this time. If you're taking notes, whether on paper or just mentally, I do want you to have a question to help frame this AM session. And that question is, what does God want from my marriage? What does God want from my marriage? Our primary purpose today is just to remind you that marriage ain't all about you. It is to some extent, but it ain't all about you. And I think I have a slide up there, Stacey. No? Um, Yeah, let's go back one more. Oh, this is actually the PM class. Yeah. (laughs) It's not the most profound point in the world, so I don't need a slide to help you. Uh, But that is the main point. We want you to be thinking, what does God want from your marriage? Uh, And I, I don't think... That anybody in this room necessarily thinks that their marriage is all about them. But we always need to be cautious about what the world is trying to teach us Mm -hmm. and disciple us in. There's an old saying that there's too much world in the church, not enough church in the world. Mm -hmm. And I do think that the world's values right now are that relationships and marriage is all about you. The me generation wants a me marriage. Uh, Let's go to that slide. I have a couple of... One more... One more. There we go. The happy marriage is the me marriage. For many people starting out their relationships today, they are going into marriage like it's a marketplace. And they're trying to find the perfect choice. And they get stuck in analysis paralysis, trying to find the one that perfectly matches their likes and dislikes. And they believe that a happy marriage is a me marriage. In this article, Tara Parker Pope writes, the notion that the best marriages are those that bring satisfaction to the individual may seem counterintuitive. After all, isn't marriage supposed to be about putting the relationship first? Not anymore. For centuries, marriage was viewed as an economic and social institution, and the emotional and intellectual needs of the spouses were secondary to the survival of the marriage itself. But in modern relationships, people are looking for a partnership, and they want partners to make their lives more interesting. And so a lot of people are not looking at marriage as a cornerstone of life, something that starts adulthood, stepping into this tried and true tradition of marriage that builds up men and women to become mature. Rather, they're looking at it as a capstone at the end of my self-fulfillment, maybe late in my 20s, early in my 30s, when I figured out me, then I'll cap marriage on top of that. The sad result, of course, is that fewer people are actually getting married. This process of self-fulfillment never actually ends. As you can see in this next slide, Uh, this was done by the CDC and the National Center for uh, Health. And this is from 1900 to today. Fewer people are getting married than ever before. They're waiting longer, and many, many more are choosing just not to get married at all. And so this is happening in the world. Marriage and its purpose is being lost. And I don't think that we've lost the purpose. I think we understand very much it's not all about us. Mm-hmm. But I still think the world creeps in a little mm-hmm. bit. Yeah. And so a lot of times at marriage retreats, what we do is we talk about tips and tricks to keep your marriage spicy. You know, to keep the passion burning. <laughs> and that's good. Like, that's a good thing. But Amanda and I, as we prayed about this And what we thought is really the need of the hour Is we just wanted to spend this AM session Rooting in biblical principle Of what marriage is for okay? And I think there's some obvious applications We'll get to through that But we want to root it first So I'm offering you this definition to start with um, Of what marriage is And we'll work through this together In your Bibles you can start turning to Genesis chapter 2 Let's see that next slide Marriage is a gift from God where one man and one woman, complementary by nature, pass down the word that gives life for the blessing of the nations. That's a very biblical understanding of marriage. It's a gift from God, first and foremost. It's for one man and one woman who are complementary by nature, second. It's the place where children should be raised. It's where offspring happens. Is in that union. That's the best place for it. And the purpose is that the whole earth might be filled with Christ followers, and the nations might be blessed. That's really the, the biblical vision of marriage. We're going to start in Genesis chapter two, verse eighteen. Let's look over that. Then the Lord God said, "It is not good for man to be alone. I will make him." A helper suitable for him. First point, marriage is a gift from God. God saw that it's not good for a man to be alone. This wasn't man's idea. He didn't just come up with it. God thought about marriage. And we as a society didn't create the union of marriage as some man-made tradition in order to keep Money and property in a patriarchal system from generation to generation. No. God thought of marriage. He saw that it was not good that man be alone, and so he created woman. And he didn't just create woman so that she'd be an object to the man, but that she would be a co equal heir of salvation, and that the two might become one. We read on in verse uh, 22. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And then the man said, at last. Who sings that song?
2: Edda James. Atta James. Atta James. Atta James.
0: Right before Edda James ever thought up the lyrics to that song, Adam was saying, at
1: last. <laughs>
0: this is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. Because she was taken out of man. The Hebrew is really interesting. Maybe you've heard this before. But he says, she shall be called Isha because she was taken out of Ish. Mm -hmm. The Hebrew corresponds to the way we use it in English also. Woman from man. Isha from Ish. There's a connection between the two. Next slide. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. So let me ask this. For what reason shall the two become one? For what reason? Is it to keep property and wealth in the family? No. The reason that the two shall become one is because God first took from man and created woman. It was not man's idea It was not just because the man really liked her, and that's why they get married. The reason why a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife is because God created her. In fact, he actually took away something from man. He took a little bit away from him. So the man is having to find that wife to find a little piece of what's been lost. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother. He'll become a man as a cornerstone of maturity and adulthood and be united with his wife. James 1.17 says, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the father. Proverbs 18.22 says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing. Marriage is a good thing. Every good thing comes from the Father. Therefore, marriage is a gift from God. The significance of this, the reason why I'm saying this, and I think I have another slide here for this, is that if God created it as a gift, it's His right to mark the boundaries of it. He gets to define its purpose. He gets to say when we should enter it, when we should leave it, or not leave it at all. He gets to define the boundaries. He is the molder and the shaper of the clay. Mm -hmm. One of the boundaries that God has made for marriage, of course, is that it is for one man and one woman. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And he has made us to be complementary by our very nature. This is an ontological, or, or the study of being. This is an ontological reality. We are different by our very nature. The mystery, of course, is that we're also very much alike. You know, man went through all creation looking for a suitable helper and none could be found. There's animals that are warm-blooded and were like them. That wasn't suitable. There are even some that almost walk on two legs at times. It wasn't suitable. He needed something a lot more like himself that was still somewhat different. Now, there's a lot of teaching, like I said, a fire hose of information coming all the time. Maybe you've heard of the ezer konekdo in Hebrew. The idea that she is a helper or an ezer, suitable, neged, to the man. Uh, what we don't hear a, a lot about is the, the Greek. It would be the Septuagint or the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. And the word that's used there is uh, boethon kata, kata meaning according to. This helps me wrap my mind around it a little bit because all the Gospels in Greek are written as kata. The Gospel of Matthew is kata Matheon. The Gospel of Mark is kata markon. The Gospel of Luke is kata lukan. And so on and so forth. And it means according to. So when Matthew gives his Gospel account, he's saying this is in accordance with what I witnessed. It has a likeness to my experience. It conforms to reality. It is true to what I've seen. It is according to me. And in the same sense, woman and man are in accordance with one another. There is an amazing similarity between us. We are deeply alike and at the same time wonderfully different. Let me share with you some of the ways that we're different. This slide here uh, one way that we're different is in our brain structure men's brains on the average are bigger so haha at the same time we don't use our brains as much as women do women's brains have more connection between the two hemispheres so this is a joke and it's also kind of true when she says that you're only using half your brain at any time which means that men tend to compartmentalize a lot more. We tend to be a lot more single-minded. If you think of hunters and gatherers, it's good for men to have a single-minded, single-track focus on the hunt. That's what we need to focus on, not what's happening over here. Our eye is on the prize. Sometimes that's a real benefit, and sometimes it's not. True. <laughs> If you think gatherers, ones that are picking fruit and berries and gathering, you have to have a wider vision. See how everything is connecting. Yeah. That can be a great benefit too. Also can be a weakness. Other ways that we're alike or similar. I mean, men's bones are denser, men's hearts are larger. There's a lot of talk about this in field of medicine, how important it is to understand how men's bodies are different than women's bodies, so that doctors can give appropriate treatment for men and women as different by nature. Uh, At the same time, even though men get to say we have denser bones and bigger hearts, women live longer. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, a whole lot of good that's doing (laughs) us. The reason I bring all this up is to show that there is deep likeness and also wonderful difference Mm -hmm. between the two. We are according to one another, fit and suitable for one another, but wonderfully different. We're, we're like reflections. We recognize the reflection, but it's inverted. We're like a left hand and a right hand, both on the same body, very similar, but also very different. And before anybody says, yeah, well, they're almost completely different, try catching a ball that I throw at you with my left hand. You won't, because it'll be 20 yards that way. <laughs> Because my hands are different. Mm-hmm. In the same way, men and women are very different. And the point I want to get to with this is that we should rejoice in the differences.
1: Mm-hmm. You should
0: rejoice that your spouse is different. Wonderfully different than you. That's one of the things God created. Uh, I've got a friend up in Bellingham who is a very extroverted man. His wife is very introverted. He spent the majority of his marriage, believing that introversion was just immaturity and she just needed to repent. And he's recently become a Christian. (laughs) Tony Latham actually helped him understand that actually, no, introversion is one of the wonderful ways that God has made us, right? Respect the difference of your wife. Um, I've talked a lot. Amanda's going to talk a little bit about some of our differences and the way that she has learned to rejoice in them. Yeah.
2: Should I just, do I, get up? Do I switch, sides? switch sides? It's like that, what do I do with my hands? <laughs> um, yeah. I think um, a lot of times we hear so much today, like oh, we're not compatible enough, right? How many times do you hear people being like, oh, we don't like the same movies, and we don't like the same sports, and we don't like the same things, and it's cool to have a spouse that you're into some of the same things, but I think God did design us a lot of times to be very attracted to somebody opposite of us. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, how many of us in here feel like we're our spouse is opposite of like our personality? Like, big time, big time. Um, and... I am very grateful for that, because Luke likes to describe us as I'm the balloon, and he's the string, so he, like, keeps me grounded. (laughs) If it were up to me, we would be living in the country like an Amish lifestyle with, like, cows and chickens and pigs, and I would just be, like, frolicking in a field of (laughs) wildflowers and all this stuff, and yeah, he's like, no, we've been put in the ministry, we're here to, like save souls and like, help people grow in the relationship with God. He keeps me grounded because then I'd be bored with that and go and do something else sure. about three weeks later. So he's my string and I'm really grateful for that. You know, um, personality wise, I'm like the manic pixie dream girl personality type the ENFP. And he's an ISFJ. Um, and I need him. Like I don't plan things. I don't like to plan things. I'm the type that's like, hey, let's do this thing. And then I just want to show up and magically things happen. (laughs) So I love him because he loves to plan. Like, he will sit there and, like, research and, like, book things and stuff. I have never booked a plane ticket. Like I'm like, oh, I want to go somewhere. And then the thought of, like, sitting in front of a computer and doing that just is like, I'm done. I don't really want to go. So I'm very grateful for my husband, whom I can say, like, we should go to New Orleans. And then he's like, yeah. And then he's like, comes back and we have a whole itinerary, and just show up. And I'm like, oh, this is fun. (laughs) Um, But I mean, more practically, our personalities can cause some friction sometimes. Like, I really do not plan. When I say that, I don't. I don't like goals. I don't like... I don't like it. He really will sit there and do a pros and cons list and, like, think things through and research everything. And I sometimes can get really frustrated with like, how long it takes. But as I've gotten older and I've learned to really see how a lot of times that's kept us out of trouble, because if I would have just like, in my rash, impulsive decision, done stuff, it's gotten us into trouble. Um, I have really learned to respect and love that about my husband. He, I need him, guys. If there were two of us, two of me in our relationship, it would be really bad. It would be really, really bad. I think, too, what I love and I feel like Luke compliments me in so much is when I'm faithless, he tends to be faithful, right? When I'm, like, overwhelmed and emotional and stressed out and I can't see any way out and I just feel like I'm a very – Oh, I am a dramatic, dramatic person. I feel extreme things. I'm a very extreme person. And so when I feel things, and even if it's a bad feeling, it's like really bad. I feel it very extremely. And it can be very hard for me to get out of that and to see outside of that. It becomes like this is what it is. And I've always been so grateful for my husband who can sit here and he will weigh in there with me. He'll weigh into the chaos and he will be that faithful rock Bringing the word of God back to me so that I can see what is real and what is true. And I can come out of that and see the sun rather than being stuck in that darkness. So I'm very grateful for differences. I'm very grateful for the way that we complement each other. My husband would do a million meetings and never do anything fun if it weren't for me. I mean, he would. He would. It would be his version of fun. But, like, I help him to experience new things and to, like get out of his little box and comfort zone right um we got chickens and he's about to build a big old fence and we're gonna have a big old garden like he is doing new things that he would just never do because of me and i also have a lot of routine and stability and growth because of my husband so
0: um can we click one more slide so Just to remind you where we're at at this point. So we've talked a little bit about how marriage is a gift from God. And he gets to contour the boundaries of that gift. Also, we talked about how he's contoured some of those boundaries around our complementary natures. And how we should rejoice in that and really lift one another up for their beautiful, wonderful differences. Next, we're getting kind of to the point of why I titled this Legacy of Faith. This idea that in a marriage we raise godly offspring. Now, I worded this very carefully as marriage is the place, hmm, this is scripture. There we go. Where marriage is the place where we give or we pass on the word that gives life. I was very cautious with that and not to just say marriage is the place where you have children for a couple of reasons, okay? Number one, not everybody can have children. Mm. Infertility is real, and it's not inferiority. Yeah. Yeah. Okay? Amen. We live in a broken world. Some people can't have kids, and it's not because of a sin. Remember when Jesus was asked, why was this man born blind? It wasn't because he sinned or his parents sinned. Right. It's merely to show that God's grace can work even when the ideal is lacking.
1: Yeah.
0: Even when the ideal is lacking, grace abounds. So it's not all about having children. okay. It is about our marriages being a place where we pass on the word that gives life. It's not just about us. In fact, many people have tons of babies and they ain't passing on the word that gives life.
2: That's true. Let's talk about it. That's not
0: exactly God's plan either. Not just to have babies. Uh, Genesis 1.28 says, God bless them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Fill the earth and subdue it means have children, have godly offspring, but also subdue the earth. The earth is a wild, untamed realm of chaos. Even before the fall, even before the ground was filled with thorns and man could only produce fruit through the sweat of his brow, the world needed shaping. God started by shaping the world with his breath, but then he put man and woman into it and said, keep it up. Go out and subdue the earth. That means sculpting stone into statues. That means crafting aqueducts writing poetry, and it means making babies. It does mean making babies. Having children is a large part of God's design for marriage. He wants godly offspring to fill the earth so that the earth might be subdued, that the children of God might bring life and flourishing. I need to say this. This shouldn't be controversial children are a blessing Mm -hmm. and that shouldn't be controversial but it is we see bumper stickers you're going to have to remind me what are some of the bumper stickers we see in bellingham on the regular
2: Oh, oh gosh! Children are destroying the planet. Stop having babies. Oh yeah. Do Cats your part. Yes. Yeah. Cats That's not kids. Cats not kids. Dogs not kids. <laughs> Seattle
0: famously has more dogs than they do children.
2: Yeah. Restaurants yeah. in Bellingham, dogs welcome, children not.
0: So again, there's a lot of culture or world in the church, even. And this has filtered into the church Mm -hmm. to some level. Um, I want to say, too, this isn't a new thing. I mean, other cultures throughout history have also not really appreciated children. Because children cause you to give of yourself. Mm -hmm. They cause your marriage to not be all about you. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there's been very noticeable examples throughout history, like Baal worship, where they would actually sacrifice their children to Baal. Mm -hmm. Uh, You think about the Roman Empire and how they would practice what they called exposure, which is essentially homicide. If they didn't want to have their children, they would just leave them outside the city gates to be exposed to the elements and die natural causes. The earliest hospitals and orphanages were started by Christians. Oftentimes, who would go out around the, the city gates and collect children that were unwanted. Even in Jewish communities, some of the Romans thought they were strange because all the Jewish women had their babies. Yep. They didn't kill their babies. And they thought, you know, you can take care of that. You know, there's ways you, you don't have to have all your babies. Yeah. Just recently on American Idol, Katy Perry got herself in some hot water. Because a woman came on and had said that she had four or five kids. Katy Perry said, you spend too much time laying on your back.
1: Whoa. Katie Perry Katy Perry said that? Katy Perry said that. Wow. Then proceeded well, to tell the Then proceeded <laughs> to... Yeah, right. something.
0: People who live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. Um, but she then proceeded to say, you know, with her wisdom, um, you're here now to pursue your dream. And I want to know that you're all in, fully committed for your dream. So there's a kind of worldly wisdom that appeals to us. Where we're like, yeah, like pursue your dreams, right? We live in the land of the free and opportunity. But then you come back and you're like, No, children need
1: parents. And it's not a
0: bad thing. It's a beautiful thing. Sadly, our church has at times imitated the culture. Um, And I know Amanda and I, growing up in ministry since, well, I was baptized in 2001, and we started ministry in 2006. We've we've seen the way that culture and the church have kind of been strange dance partners. and Mm -hmm. Trying to figure out how Mm -hmm. should we as Christians think about family and children. Mm -hmm. I know you had some thoughts about
1: yeah,
2: um, <laughs> again, I'm like it's going to be a strange dance every time. I um, yeah, I think in our church history, I think the ICOC has done a lot of amazing things, right? I think we love the lost. We want to help the gospel spread. Um, but I do think that there are some things that we haven't always done right. And we all know that. We're all seeing a lot of the consequences of um, some of the decisions in the ICOC, but even now. But um, growing up in ministry in the ICOC was really interesting because the women before me, the generation before me, definitely had some really hard when it came to children. Like, it was like they had to get permission to have kids. If they wanted more than two kids, they'd be told you can't do ministry because you can't effectively share a gospel. Um, and literally they would have to ask, like, can I have a baby now? And sometimes the answer was no. A lot of times it was. And then once they had kids, it was like, get this college student to watch your kids for every single event you're not even allowed to, you have to be at, and your kids can't bring your kids, like, crazy. And we've seen generations of kids not want to become disciples. It's been actually really heartbreaking. I think a lot of us that have been around for a long time have felt the effects and the heartbreak from that. And so I'm like the generation after that, and so it's gotten a little better, but there's still weirdness. Like, I have four kids, guys. That's not very common in ministry, and it was actually one of the things that made me want to come to the Pacific Northwest because everybody at the time in Seattle had four kids, four or five kids. And I was like, oh my gosh, these are my people. I've never seen this before. <laughs> but I remember being pregnant with my third, and having uh, one of the older women in L.A. be like, what is this, your fifth kid? <gasps> Yeah, and I was just like, no, (laughs) you're skipping a couple numbers there, Um, but just feeling that like, like shame that I wanted to have kids, right, like, like something's wrong with me or I'm not doing my job well enough, and I don't think that that ever really came to like, just everyday members of the church, but I think that attitude towards children definitely trickled down.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Because we really did in the early days put this like you seek first the kingdom, mm-hmm. you seek first the kingdom, your families, everything comes second. The church is more important, you got to do this, got to do this. Mm-hmm. And we had a lot of um, families really put their heart and seek first the kingdom, and their kids were pushed to the side. Yeah. Um, and, guys, that's that is not a biblical attitude towards kids. Um, That is not the way God views kids. And so for me, like, I really want to encourage us to really understand the way God views kids. You don't have to have kids. You don't have to have four kids or ten kids. You can have two kids. That's totally fine. But so much of the way we talk about kids and I hear people talk about kids sounds so of the culture and of the world and the world's view of children, that they're a burden, that they take away your freedom, that they ruin your body, that they cost too much. Like, all these just really negative views of children. They're annoying. Like, all these different things. Like, that is not the way God views children. I think of Psalm 127. I can literally, from the beginning of the scriptures to the very end, very fluent in the way God views children. They are a blessing. He says, children are an heritage from the Lord, right. blessed is the man who has his quiver full of them. Mm-hmm. Any like arrow hunters? <laughs> That's 12 arrows, guys 12 arrows, 12 kids. So, I don't think we need to have that, but my heart is to like help us to see children the way God sees children. He never designed the church really to grow by cold contact sharing it's a part of it we should do it but his plan from the beginning was through this legacy and passing on mm-hmm. we have godly children we raise up godly children they take on the baton and continue to have godly children and reach out to the community
1: Amen. and we need to have godly children Amen. so
2: yeah that's actually really
0: it's really good I'm being extemporaneous here. This isn't in my notes, but just even the, the like sneeze theory of church growth. You guys ever heard this? No. Sne- sneeze builds up, <laughs> and then boom, goes out yeah. like spores. And sometimes the church does that. It like gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And sometimes things get agitated in a church, and then boom, people go. The diaspora. Right? So like the uh, persecution broke out in Jerusalem, and the Christians were spread everywhere. And And wherever they went, with their kids, with their families, they lived quiet lives, and they, you know, went back to work, and they did those things. But they met new people, and as they met new people, they shared their lives with them, shared the gospel with them. And this is God's vision. Mm
1: -hmm. Fill the earth Mm -hmm. and
0: subdue it. Mm
1: -hmm. It's
0: both. Um, A couple things I want to add to what Amanda was saying, too. I think um, kids are a burden. Let's just say that. (laughs) But in a really great way.
1: <laughs>
0: One way you can think about it is that when you're a single person, your scale of love, relationship, happiness, it's kind of like negative ten to positive ten. You know what it's like to feel pain, you know what it's like to feel great joy. When you get married, your scale of love, happiness number yes. <laughs> is like negative fifty, yeah. positive fifty. You suddenly see colors you never saw before. You know love like you never knew it before. When you have your babies your range goes from negative 100 to positive 100. Yeah. You know some pains that you've never known before, but you know some joys that yeah. you've never known yeah. So it's real. They're a burden, but they're also a great joy.
1: And so the, other, the only other
0: thing I want to say about this um, before we, we read a little scripture on some practicals is that I know some people have chosen not to have children. My advice if you're choosing not to have children is still spread the word that amen. gives. Yeah, you can wrap your arms around teens, yes. bring those young ones in. You're still a part of the kingdom. You have children. You have spiritual little yeah. brothers and sisters that still need you. Yeah. Love them. Pour yourself into them. Yeah. Okay? So the old saying, it takes a village. Yeah, it, yeah. it, it does. So Deuteronomy 6, let's read this again. Uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is often called the Shema, because in Hebrew, here is Shema. So it's Shema Yisrael. This is maybe the most quoted scripture in all of scripture, because this is a regular recited prayer or memory verse among many Jews to this day. Shema Yisrael, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, with all your strength. That's the greatest commandment, isn't it? These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. The next thing that comes, impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the doorframes of your houses and on your gates. Have you ever seen people with the phylacteries, the boxes, inside those boxes? I'm talking about... Um, Orthodox Orthodox Jews Jews today. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sometimes they'll have tassels wrapped around their arms. Mm -hmm. They have scripture written inside the box because they're taking the Shema literally Mm -hmm. and tying scripture to their uh, heads. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe you've seen somebody walk into a door and kiss the door frame, a little box. It's called a mezuzah. Mezuzahs have scripture written inside of it, taking this scripture literally. I don't think this is meant to be literal. I'm not opposed to it. If you want to have a box of scripture on your forehead, by all means, <laughs> do it. Probably will lead to some great conversations. <laughs> what I think this is saying is that we need to marinate ourselves in the Word and marinate our homes and marinate our marriages. Like steak. Right, Dan? Let's go. Marinate. Of course, you don't have to marinate. You just some salt and I pepper. Yeah. You've got to season it, though. You've got to get the seasoning coating the whole state. And that's what's going on here. So he says, look, impress this on your children. Impress it in your home. That means that when you're sitting down at home at a mealtime, talk about Scripture. When you're on a journey, maybe a road trip, talk about Scripture. Hey, when it's bedtime, let's talk about Scripture. Let's pray a little bit. When you get up in the morning, let's talk about Scripture. Let's talk about God. Let's pray a little bit. He goes on to say, when, when you uh, think about your clothing and how you adorn yourself, adorn yourself with the word. Mm-hmm. You can wear, like, not-of-this-world gear if you want, but it can also just be dressing modestly. Mm-hmm. In some way, you're always thinking about how God's word impacts my life.
1: Right, come
0: on. Okay. What does it say next? Uh, the door frames of your houses and on your gates. It was awesome being in Dan Stacy's house yesterday, just seeing scriptures just on the walls. Yep. You literally are having God's word. Mm-hmm. Marinating your whole home. Yeah. Amanda is really good at this. She is the keeper of the home, so uh, she's going to talk a little bit about this. too.
2: Yeah, I think um, I think women. This is where we I think really thrive. I think we have ability to really make this happen in our homes and with our children and in our marriages. As women, we pretty much set the daily rhythms, right, of our home. We keep the schedule, we do the meal planning, we know which kid is going here and going to the dentist and going to the doctor. Like, we have the daily rhythms. Every home has a schedule and a daily rhythm that it keeps. And I think this is where we can really make sure we're bringing God's word into our daily rhythms. Um, And so we do these in different ways. Um, I'm just going to share like three of my favorite ways we do this. Um, We are huge believers in family worship. I think some of you guys were on that call where we talked about family worship. And for us, we keep it very simple. We're doing it even different now than when we talk to you guys. Sometimes it changes. But we try to keep this as like a for real daily rhythm. And so if it does get missed here or there, for the most part throughout the week, we are having family worship with our kids every single day. Um, And right now, we do it at the breakfast table um, before we disperse for school and homeschooling and taking the kids to, two of the kids to school. Um, And we're just reading, um, actually, we're going through... Timothy Keller's, like daily devotional and prayer. So we'll yeah. read a scripture and a devotional, and then we read the prayer together and pray, and then we talk a little bit about it as we're finishing up our breakfast. Um, and that's what we're doing. That's our family worship with our kids every day. Um, but we just start our day off with the words. Sometimes that changes. Sometimes we do it at night at the dinner table. Sometimes it's before bed. Just where the season is, sometimes we sing. We have longer family worships, so like during the summer. And we sing psalms, or not psalms, hymns at the end. Like, But we try every day to do a family worship with our kids. And just start their day off, or end their day off, reflecting on God's word. Um, we have been trying to practice a Sabbath. And for us, the weekdays do not work. It just does not work. Um, with homeschooling and different things, or school So we have been fighting really hard to protect our Saturdays, which is very controversial. Sometimes in the ministry it can be very hard. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, we really try not to plan anything on a Saturday. And we take that day and we dedicate it to um, resting in the Lord, longer family worship, games together, going to a park together, doing something fun together with our kids, and resting some more in the Lord. Um, and just having rest, God, and family. Yep. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we can't avoid the fact that we have to do something on Saturday. It's Saturday, and we're here in Eugene. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean. So sometimes things happen and come up, but for the most part, for the most part, we try very hard to protect our Saturdays yes. and have it very focused. Um, and probably my favorite is every December we do Advent. I've been practicing Advent for years. And I have it down pretty much to science where we have very um, special traditions we do along with our week. And sometimes I change up my lessons, but our traditions are always the same. So, you know, the first week of Hope, we bake an orange cake together and we'll light the candle. We'll eat our orange cake and we'll talk about Hope and we make... We just have these little crafts, um, gingerbread cookies, making candles all throughout the month of December as we every night sit, light a candle, and reflect on the birth of Jesus and what the meaning of Christmas is. And these are some of the ways as women I think we can really help bring... That the word in on our homes and creating these rhythms of spirituality and training our kids up in the Lord and to love them.
0: Yeah. That was really good stuff. I, I grew up in the churches of Christ. I don't know anybody else grew up in churches of Christ. Um, they're different. Not They're all, not all the same. But the one I grew up in anyways uh, really didn't observe any kind of holiday season. We just didn't have that. Uh, felt that it was kind of a Lutheran or Catholic. Just a worldly tradition. So we didn't uh, – something like Advent would be considered very bad. <laughs> what happened as a result was we understood Christmas as the time that Santa brings us gifts.
1: Right. Yeah. I don't know if that's any better. Yeah. Right? Like
0: that engendered a lot of entitlement in me and greed and consumerism. So, uh, yeah, we are choosing to do Advent. Not because it's a part of some liturgical calendar, but because we want to have rhythms in our life where we're just turning our eyes to God. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And so you don't have to do that
0: but you no. should have a rhythm but, in your life. Yeah. And even if you don't have kids, remember this is a, a marriage retreat, not a, a kid's retreat or a family retreat, uh, but even if you don't have kids, have rhythms in your life. Mm-hmm. Pray together regularly. Yes. Uh, if you don't know, now you know, uh, Kelly and Cheryl are like the gold yeah. standard yes. of yes. Marriage, marriages that pray. They've been dedicated to prayer together for many years. Uh, And you know when you sit in their presence, you ask them for counsel, you know they are people of prayer. You know that they've spent a lot of time together wrestling with the Lord. So I encourage you to do that. too. Last point. We've got about five minutes left before we wrap up for lunch. And I just want to say, ultimately, the vision that God has is that, of course, he gives us the gift. He makes us complimentary, which is great. It's part of the joy of marriage. Uh, Produces offspring, oftentimes. (laughs) But ultimately, it's to be a blessing to the world. In Genesis chapter 12, when God selected his man, Abraham, there's no slide for this. Um, God selected his man, Abraham. He gave him a promise. He said, I am going to make you to have many offspring, and they will be a blessing for the nations. It will be a blessing for the nations. That was his vision. Ultimately, that's fulfilled in Christ, the offspring of Abraham. But it's also one of the purposes of marriage, that we would be a blessing to our neighbors. When you think in the New Testament about uh, Priscilla and Achilla, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and how they had seen this young man, Apollos, who kind of knew the way of the Lord, but he wasn't teaching it fully. What do they do? They bring him into their home. They use their marriage, their complimentary gifts, and they help him understand the way of the Lord better. That's a marriage that blessed the nations. Mm -hmm. And there's many ways that you can bless your community through your marriage, but one of the primary ways you do it is through hospitality. Opening up your doors and having friends in. Amanda was talking earlier about how cold contact sharing isn't the primary way that we make disciples. It is definitely good.
2: I mean... It is one of the ways, Just a quick poll here. How many of us were just met
0: randomly? Mm -hmm. So we're all very grateful for cold contact sharing. Very (laughs) grateful somebody had that boldness, okay? At the same time, that's not how everybody's met. Uh, And so our marriages can be a very effective way to just share our lives with people. Mm -hmm. Uh, Amanda, again, is going to share a little bit about this.
2: Yeah, Yeah, I just recently had like an interesting experience. We have this really great neighbor, Susie, my uh, nine-year-old. Her best friend lives across the street from us. Her name's Willow, sweetest little girl, over at my house every day, Leaves like three pairs of shoes. I don't know how many pairs of shoes that girl has because they are all at my house. But um, uh, we've had her parents over for dinner a couple times, game nights, different things, but nothing had really super like, Click clicked between a super sweet, like get along very well. They're taking care of our chickens right now. She always does. We're gone all the time. She's like always does our mail. Like they're awesome, but like we hadn't built that like really deep, deep friendship yet. Just trying to build that with them. But they um, that show parent test. I don't know if anybody if saw that. It came out. Was it Ness Peacock? Hulu. I don't know. It came on something. And she was watching it, and she texted me and was like, Hey, can we get together? Because I want to talk to you about parenting, my parenting. Mm, and I was wow. like, what is this? And so she set it up, we went to Woods together, which is like the best coffee shop, guys. If you ever come up, I'll take you to Woods. <laughs> anyway, so we um, went to Woods, we had coffee, and the things she said, she was like, you know, watching this show, the families that really like spoke to me were the religious families and mm-hmm. the values that they were instilling on their kids that just seemed mm-hmm. so timeless mm-hmm. that I don't have because I grew up in an atheistic home and I don't know how to instill that into Willow mm-hmm. and I was like the whole time I'm praying for discernment. Because I'm like, do I invite her to church? Do I like you know like well, trying to like figure out like what what how I can be a blessing to her mm-hmm. um, and she just brought up this situation that my daughter had with her daughter like they were sneaking something and like she called them out on it and they lied about it both of them they were like no no we didn't and they totally could have gotten away with it and Susie my my little girl was like was heart and she went like a minute later and she was like Anna I'm sorry we were doing that I lied I'm so sorry will you forgive me And she was so like overgrown by that she was wow. like that's such a good example like Willem needs to see people do that right wow. And so I'm, like, praising my daughter. I'm like, oh, yes. you did. <laughs> I'm like, just so proud of her. You know what I mean? Like, she just really has such a soft heart. That's more her than I think sometimes even us. But, um, but, you know, talking to her, she was like, how do I instill these things, you know? And so, you know, we've invited them out to church, and they aren't ready for that. But, like, just even encouraging her, like, start reading the book of Proverbs yes. below, you know? And I'm here. If you have any awesome. questions, I can help you more. We can talk about it you don't, you know, you don't understand something. Um, but the point is, like, people are watching, yes. watching our marriages, guys, watching our kids, watching our marriages. Luke and I are not perfect. For real, guys. Like, I am not. I mean, Chris and Evie you know me. I'm not, I'm not naturally, like, a submissive woman. Like, I'm not. That's not... Just in me, like I have to really work on things, but um, and we're not we're not perfect parents and we're not perfect in our marriages. But people are watching your marriages when you're at work, when you're at the park with your kids, your neighbor, the kids, families that play with your kids or the friends you have into your home. They are watching and they can see something different. Our marriages really do reflect Jesus and reflect God and something different and separate, and that's one of the things that Anna saw through times hanging out with us and saw with with Susanna and our kids, and so I just encourage you, like, you know when you hang out with friends at work and they're, like, just trashing their spouses or, you know, and then you come in and you talk lovingly about your spouse, and it makes a big difference. I just encourage you to remember that people are watching and your marriage can really mm-hmm. help people see Jesus. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So when, when you're thinking about the importance of this lesson, why are Luke and Amanda talking about the purpose of marriage? I want you to think of Anna. I want you to think of her and how she's just trying to figure out how do I raise my daughter? Mm-hmm. She also shared, Amanda didn't mention this, that she's been watching some YouTube stuff. I mean, that's okay. That's moving her in actually a godly direction. She's starting to listen to some people who fear God on YouTube. But she's just a sheep without a shepherd. And God has blessed us with the opportunity in our marriages to shepherd people, to pastor people. And you don't have to be a preacher. You don't have to be in leadership. The simple fact that God has given you this gift means that he's entrusted you with a precious resource. Yeah. It is for your enjoyment. You mm-hmm. are wonderfully made and suitable for each other.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But it's for more than that to yes. also mm-hmm. be a blessing to the nations.
1: Yeah.
0: Let's think about these things and talk about them as we go out to lunch. And I'd like to just, you know, lead us in prayer. before mm-hmm. we go. Father in heaven, we are so very grateful for the example that Jesus has given us of love. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to talk about that even in the afternoon, how he loved us the way that husbands should love the church. Um, or Sorry, I'm mixing up this. He loved us the way that husbands should love their wives. Uh, you created this gift of marriage. Uh, I just pray that we would really digest the things that we've been talking about, uh, that we'd really get one thing or two things that are really going to help bless our marriages so that we can be a blessing to the nations. We pray this for your glory and in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. <laughs>